measured, boundless, and free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. Underneath me, all around me, is the current of your love, leading onward, leading homeward to your glorious rest above. That's a verse that we just sang corporately a little bit ago that is the very essence and the thrust of why we are here. It's the deep, deep love of Jesus that through his life, his death, and his resurrection, I pray that in our time today that we grow in a a much deeper understanding of this and a much more passionate understanding of Jesus' love. As my ordination council started to get closer and as February 8th started to peek its head around the the corner on my calendar, I started to really think, what am I going to preach? What passage am I going to to open up before the congregation and and what are we going to study together? Uh, I started to think of things like, what passage have I been reading lately that I've started to write about? Or what uh, is going on in the life of the church that I could preach a standalone sermon from? Every time I'd I'd find a great passage and and I'd start to do the deep exegetical work on it, my mind would change. I'd move on to something else and and I'd start doing that work, I'd start studying and and my mind would keep changing. And I I started to get worried last week when I still hadn't really figured out what I wanted to preach for my ordination and something hit me. I stand on this stage every single week leading this congregation in corporate singing with Pastor Chris. Every couple of months, I get the the great opportunity to open God's Word and and to to preach to you. But if I were to ask one simple question, most of us wouldn't be able to answer it. If I asked, who do you say I am? Different opinions and different views would start to, to rise to the top. So if I said, who do you say I am? Most of your opinions would come back, well, Nathan likes to smile or... Nathan is, is, is very musical, or uh, Nathan seems to have a passion for God's gathered people. I've even heard sometimes that people say, well, that guy's incredibly charming and dangerously debonair. And um, it's opinions, and people are allowed to have their opinions. But if we were to look at the reality of it, not every opinion is positive. And let's be honest, we've all heard opinions about ourselves sometimes that really make us wonder. There's been a couple times in my life I've, I've heard what people have said about me and I, I sit back and, and I start to think, why do they have that opinion of me? What did I do to, to leave that impression on them that they would think that? Most of what you would say about me would be an opinion. There's either going to be positive opinions or there's going to be negative opinions. And this goes for anybody that you encounter in your life. You're going to meet them, you're going to form an opinion. I've got a couple pictures here I want to show as as an example. Let's see the first one. I show this picture of LeBron James. Two things are happening. Either in your mind you have a very positive opinion of who he is. You're happy he's back in Cleveland. You're happy that that the team is, is now doing well. Or you have a negative opinion of him. You're still upset that he left. You still don't understand why he did it. And it was such a childish move to leave. Either positive or negative. Let's see the second picture. Brian Williams. I'm going to tell you he's one of my favorite news anchors to watch. 
I, I've always just loved the way he, he presents the news, but unfortunately, he, he's gotten caught in a scandal. He, he's lied. I show you a picture of Brian Williams, and you're either going to have a positive opinion because you like him, or now you've formed a negative opinion because of his circumstances. Let's see the third picture. I'm not going to say much. <laughs> I don't want to start any fights. Just hear me out on the example. I show you a picture of President Obama, and you're either going to have a positive opinion about him, or you're going to have a negative opinion, or sometimes there's a third one. It's a sinful opinion, but we can talk about that afterwards. But as we, as we look at these, these people, the list can go on and on about our opinions, we can argue whether some of these opinions are, are just too positive, or we can argue that some of these opinions are, are too negative, though our opinions sometimes may seem like they have some validity. Sometimes they may seem like they're right. Sometimes we may look at a situation and think we are dead on with our opinion, but there's only one truth that stands. The only truth that remains is that an opinion is just what it is, an opinion. Our opinions and observations say who we truly think someone is. Are they a good person? Or do I not want to be around them? We don't know these people that I just showed you on a personal level. So the observations that we have, the, the thoughts that we have on them, are purely opinion. We don't know them. But with just opinions, we can't recognize somebody for who they truly are. I've got one more picture here. Can we show that? It's the cross. More importantly, to stand for who is on the cross. Jesus. Show this picture today, and the opinions just start to fly. People are either going to have incredibly positive opinions on who they believe Jesus is, or they're going to have incredibly negative opinions on who Jesus is. So my question today is, who do you say he is? Do you recognize Jesus for who he truly is, or do you just have opinions? Who do you say Jesus is? And before we get started into our text, let's, let's pray that God illuminates his word to us and, and opens our eyes so that we can better understand this. So would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, gracious Lord, we have uh, gathered together today in, in eager expectation to study your word. Father, I pray that as we begin our time in your word, we don't do so lightly, but that we understand your word is sufficient and that it is authoritative in our lives. Father, we thank you for the word that you have given us. We pray that your word illuminates our hearts and our minds today with your truth. Father, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to look in the Gospel of Matthew. So pull out your Bibles. We're going to go to Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. If you're using a pew Bible today, the, the little black Bible that's sitting in your pew, that's going to be found on page 822. If you do not have a Bible of your own and, and you've come in today, take that Bible with you. It, it's our gift. Old North, we firmly believe that you should have a Bible, so if you don't, please take it. There'll be another one in its place next week. Trust me. 
Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, or others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Who you say Jesus is not only says who you truly think he is, but also says who you are. Who you say Jesus is radically defines your life. Scripture shows us three things about who we say Jesus is. And the first one is, who you say Jesus is, is not based on opinion. Let's start looking again at verses 13 through 16. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Right from the start, we see a, a clear, definite difference between what culture says and what the disciples say. Jesus asked, who do people say I am, referring to the culture around, and then he turns the, the question around and says, who do you say I am, speaking to his followers, speaking to his disciples. The answers to both of these questions came back drastically different. The answer from culture, some say John the Baptist. Some said Elijah or Jeremiah or just one of the prophets. The opinions of culture varied on who Jesus is. They placed no real importance on Jesus. They didn't recognize him for who he really was. To them, he was just another prophet. He was a religious figure. They saw what he was doing, what he was teaching, and just lumped him into the category of prophet. Culture wasn't sure who Jesus really was, so they formed opinions. Culture couldn't give anything other than opinions because they didn't know Jesus. It's like trying to describe something that you, you have never encountered. It's, it's like trying to describe something you've never experienced, and it's, it's like trying to describe something you don't have a firsthand knowledge of. If I were to pull up an apple and, and hold an apple right now and say, let's, let's describe this. Can you, can you tell me what this is? Everybody in the room would be able to start describing it. We could start talking about the different varieties of apples. We could start talking about the proper way to cut an apple. We could talk about whether you want to eat the core of the apple or not eat the core. You could talk about how firm some apples are versus the others. You could talk about how crispy some apples are versus the others, how juicy some apples are. There are so many things that we can use to describe an apple. Why? We've all experienced it. 
We've all encountered. We all have a, a firsthand knowledge of an apple. But what about this fruit? Let's see this one. This is called a durian fruit. Most of you have no idea what a durian fruit is. And, and if you do, please don't raise your hand or say anything because you'll really ruin my illustration. But let's just pretend no one has any idea what a, what a durian fruit is. Asking culture who Jesus is is like asking us to describe what a durian fruit is. The only thing that we can say about it is we can make some assumptions. We can start uh, observing this fruit and, and form some type of opinion. We could look at it and go, oh, you know what? It kind of looks like pineapple, doesn't it? So maybe, maybe it's full of, of juicy fruit. Maybe it's, it's really acidic and, and goes well with so many other tropical fruits. Or maybe, well, it's round. Coconuts are round, so maybe it's got some type of flesh on the inside like coconut does. Maybe it has some type of coconut water or, or coconut milk. Yeah, that could be it. Without having a knowledge of this fruit, without ever having experienced this fruit, your opinion is going to be wrong. Let's see what this looks like cut open. This is a durian fruit cut open. It is one of the grossest fruits on the face of the planet. It is described as the smell of rotting gym socks. It is mushy and cold. And I watched a guy eat it on, on YouTube, because YouTube has everything. And as the guy was, was gagging down eating parts of this durian fruit, all he kept saying was, oh, it's like onion ice cream. Mmm, let's pray. Let's go to lunch now. That sounds, that sounds great. Um, our opinion is wrong unless we know the fruit. Our opinion is wrong unless we have tasted the fruit. Our opinion is wrong unless we have cut open that durian fruit and seen its glorious nastiness in, in, in firsthand experience. Our opinion is going to be wrong. We can't know the durian fruit without truly experiencing it. Jesus turns the question around. But who do you say that I am? Let's, let's look at the language of this sentence real quick. Let's, let's break it down. Using the word but shows that there is a contrast from his first question. Using the word you signifies that he is speaking to a, a different group. The answer this time is going to be different because Jesus is speaking to different people. They aren't people of the culture. Christ isn't asking just anybody, who am I? He's asking his followers. He's asking his disciples. Peter responds for the group. Peter responds for the disciples. And he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. For Peter to call Jesus Christ was more than just a, a mere title. It was the true recognition of who he was. The Son of God. The Messiah. In that answer, Jesus was not just another prophet. 
He wasn't just another spokesman of the religious faith. He wasn't just another good example for people to follow. He was the one that came into the world to save and redeem and reconcile. Peter's answer shouldn't be surprising. These disciples gave up everything in their life to follow him. They have been with him for some time. They have, they have seen his teaching. They, they have seen the things that Jesus had done. The disciples recognized Jesus because they knew him. Not by opinions. They knew him. Why is it that, that culture can't recognize this? Why is it that when Jesus asked, culture couldn't see it, but yet the disciples could? The answer we're going to find in verse 17. So let's go to verse 17 here real quick. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. The reason the disciples were able to recognize who Jesus truly was was because God revealed it to them. I'm going to say that again. I don't know if that, that really sunk in. The disciples were able to recognize who Jesus was because God revealed it to them. Who do you say Jesus is has been revealed by God. This, this verse is telling us a couple things, that the recognition of Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah, as the Son of the living God is a blessing because flesh and blood did not reveal it to you. Because God, the Father in heaven has. What does this mean? Scripture says that, that Peter was blessed. The, 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 the Greek word that's used here in, in the New Testament for, for blessing here uh, isn't uh, a, a type of happiness that comes from money. It, it's not a, a happiness that comes from uh, worldly desires. It, it literally translates to saying happiness in being fortunate. Peter is blessed because he's fortunate. What is he fortunate of? God revealed Jesus. Flesh and blood are, are spoken in the New Testament four times. It's in Ephesians, it's in Galatians, it's in 1 Corinthians, and it's also in the book of Hebrews. And each time the words flesh and, and blood are spoken of, they're, they're spoken of, of finite human capability. Flesh and blood were not good enough to reveal who Jesus was. But there was someone who's infinite and not finite. If I take my glasses off, and uh, I, I couldn't see my notes right now if, if I tried. Uh, I can't make out most of your, your faces. I, I would have no idea who's, who's standing in front of me. Um, I'm blind. I can't drive without my glasses. I, I can't do anything without these glasses. Uh, I remember when I first got glasses. I was in the sixth grade. I was about 11 or 12 years old. And uh, I've previously stated uh, one of the last times I spoke that I've always been a big guy. I've been probably six foot one since the sixth grade. And uh, I was never allowed to sit anywhere in the classroom but the back row. 
If I sat in the middle or if I sat in the front, one of the tiny kids that was my age behind me couldn't see anything around me. So I had to sit in the back. And I remember sitting, looking at the board, and not being able to make out stuff. I remember starting to ask questions. Well, teacher, what did you just write? She'd say something else, and I'd say, well, teacher, what what did you just write there? And I'm squinting, and I'm not making out anything. Everything in front of me is is blurry. Finally, after a couple days and and a couple of weeks, I started moving forward. I made it to the front row, and I'm still sitting there, squinting my eyes, and not being able to make out what's on the board. What should be clear in front of me is not clear. Clear. What's sitting right in front of me that I should be able to see a couple feet in front of me is blurry. Teacher calls home, Mr. and Mrs. Harris, uh, you need to take Nathan to an eye doctor because uh, we think he needs glasses. And My parents made an appointment. I went, and lo and behold, guess what? I'm blind. I needed glasses. And I remember walking into class with my glasses for the first time with, with such an excitement. I sat in that back row, and I'm looking up at the board, and as I'm putting my glasses on, everything that I could not see was revealed to me. Everything that was blurry at one point that should have been clear was now clear. My finite human capability could not see. My eyes could not see what was plain in front of me. I needed something else to go in my place to allow me to see. Do you see where I'm going with this? Everyone picking up? You have faces of stone, so I can't tell. I'll keep talking and getting louder if no one, no one kind of speaks back at me. But I needed something else to, to go in my place so that I could see. In the same sense, God revealed who Christ was to the disciples so they could see him for who he really was and still is. Flesh and blood was not good enough, so it was necessary for God to reveal who Jesus was. That's why Peter was blessed. Because in the finite ability of humanity, God in his infinite character revealed Jesus. We are blessed by God's good graces to be fortunate enough to see who Jesus is. God still reveals who Jesus is today. That didn't end in the first century. God still takes the glasses he has made for us and and puts it over our faces so that we can still see clearly who Jesus is. How does God reveal Jesus? Hebrews 1 tells us that in the past God spoke in many ways and at many times. But in the later days he speaks through his son who's his son. Jesus. Let's look at the Gospel of John and make make a jump here. Gospel of John says the Word became flesh, the Word was with God, and indeed was God. That God reveals Jesus through his Word. How does God reveal Jesus today? Okay, let's get something straight. This This is not a presentation, it's a little bit of communication, so Feel free if I ask a question, you can, you can respond. But how does God still reveal today who Jesus is? How does God still reveal who Jesus is today? Someone turn to your neighbor and say, through the word. 
Sorry, I'm sometimes an old, old Southern Baptist at heart. Yeah. Through his word, through his word only, is how we recognize Jesus. We realize something about ourselves when that revelation happens. I love John Piper's quote as he talks about when Jesus is revealed to us, what we start to think. He he says that when Jesus is revealed to us, we understand that we're sinners in need of a Savior. We understand that we're dirty and we're in need of a purifier. That we are lost sheep in need of a shepherd. That we're sick and in need of a physician. And my favorite yet, that we are rebels in need of a reconciler. As God reveals who Jesus is, and we recognize him for whom he is, it's in that recognition we know that Jesus isn't just another prophet. We know that he isn't just another servant of God. We know that he isn't just another good person or an example for us to follow in our lives, but he is the Christ. He is the Messiah. Who you say Jesus is, is not based on opinion. Who you say Jesus is, has been revealed by God. And who you say Jesus is, is the rock of the church. Let's look at verses 18 and 20, church. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. What is the rock that Jesus is talking about? For centuries, this, is, this has been a heavily debated conversation between denominations. There's so many different views on, on what people think Jesus says, what Jesus means when he says the rock. Through studying, I, I don't think we can come up with any other plausible answer, any other solution other than the fact that it's Christ's affirmation of Peter's confession of who he is. The very rock that Jesus is talking about is the fact that Peter recognizes who Jesus is, the Christ. It's upon that rock, that core foundational truth, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who came to redeem the world and to reconcile us back to God. That's what the church is built on. There are are two real implications that we can look at from this passage of, of the rock being what the church is built upon. The first is that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Isn't that kind of like, isn't that an interesting saying, like the gates of hell are not going to prevail against this? When I, when I think of gates, I, I think of something that's used more for defense, not something that's for the offense. I, I would look at something that would be to, to protect you and not necessarily be used as a weapon. But as we look at the first century, the gate was one of the most structurally important parts of anything. It was one of the most important pieces of any fortification. Gates were looked upon as something of great strength. So to look at this, the gates of hell would have been considered incredibly strong. 
I mean, they did hold back all of the dead. It's likely that as we look at this, this metaphorical look, it's, it's the power between death and church. And Christ says, death will not stop the church. There is nothing in this world or in the next that can possibly hinder or stop the church. How encouraging is that today? Because of who Christ is, nothing will stop the church. The second implication that Jesus tells us is that he gives the keys of the kingdom and whatever we bind and loose on earth will bind and loose in heaven. We must understand that as Jesus told Peter this, he, he wasn't telling him, I'm going to hand you a giant uh, roll of janitor keys and you're going to swing them on your finger standing in front of the pearly gates waiting for every single person to die and you're going to unlock the door and let them in. No, that, that's not right. It's not too far off, though, from the idea of, of letting people in through a, a doorway or, or a gateway, but it's a metaphorical door. Peter was given the keys based on his confession of who Christ is, not by his own abilities. Remember, flesh and blood, not good enough? Peter's confession, that's the keys. Peter now has the ability, because of his confession, to share in all authority and power and ultimately lead people to God's kingdom. The keys he has is to share the gospel of Christ. You know we have that ability, right? You know we have that ability, right, church? The power and authority of the gospel are intertwined within the very pages we're reading. If Peter had the keys to the kingdom and we have that same ability to, to proclaim the gospel, why did Jesus strictly tell the disciples, don't tell anybody I'm the Christ? I mean, if, if it's a perplexing statement that it, we just went through this entire passage ramping up the idea and growing in the knowledge of not just who Jesus is, but the church is based on this foundation. We're excited. We want to share it. And then here Jesus says, wait a second. Don't tell anybody. Don't, don't tell anybody. Keep it quiet. That deflates my excitement quicker than a New England football. I, I don't know. If you get that later, you can send me an email. But it, it just doesn't make sense. That we, we've got such good news that we can share, that we can help people see Jesus. Don't tell anybody. Let's unpack this statement. Let, let's, let's dig a little bit deeper. Let's really see what Jesus means when he says, don't tell anybody. At this moment, as Christ tells the disciples that not to tell anybody, it wasn't because this wasn't the core foundation of what the church is built upon. It wasn't because Jesus was trying to stay in hiding or in secret. It's because his work on earth was not yet complete. To know Jesus was the Messiah is one thing, but to fully understand the works of the Messiah is something else. This would have caused great confusion as, as the Jewish nation would have been looking for the zeal of a conquering king to lead them and, and to, to perform signs of wonders and miracles, but they weren't looking for a suffering servant or a servant Messiah to lead them in victory through the cross. 
Jesus wanted people to come to the same realization of who he is the same way the disciples did. Through the confession. When Jesus' work was complete and, and death had been defeated and Christ was resurrected, he charges the disciples, go out in the world, teach and train and raise up. We find that in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. It's the Great Commission. It's, it's to share that good news. It's to share that stark and urgent news that Christ is here, that there's a new authority, there's a new rule over our lives, that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. That in God's grace, we recognize him for who he is. Who you say Jesus is, is not based on opinion. Who you say Jesus is has been revealed by God. And who you say Jesus is is the rock of the church. So the question I asked at the beginning, is it's still ringing out. Who do you say Jesus is? Are you, are you resounding with culture? forming opinions, or do you recognize him as the Christ? It was clear to the disciples, Jesus was not just another man. I want to close with a passage here that truly answers the question of who Jesus is. Feel free to turn with me to the uh, book of Colossians. Uh, If not, I'm going to to read it out anyway. So it's Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. In everything Christ is preeminent and that through the blood on the cross he has brought back, he has reconciled to himself all things. Christ's preeminence means that he surpasses all, that Jesus is over all, and that none can compare. He is not just another prophet. He is not just a great man. He is not just an example for our lives. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is better than all. We're going to sing that very thing in response today together. We're going to sing of Christ's preeminence, that Jesus is before all things, and in him all things hold together. As we sing, think about the question, who do you say Jesus is? Do you believe that he is before all things, and that in him all things hold together? 
that in full faith we can declare that all things, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, Jesus is better. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity to hear from your word. That as culture opposes who you are, we find our strength in knowing that the rock the church is built upon can't be destroyed. No matter what we may face, we are secure in knowing that you are better. Father, we thank you for your grace and revealing your son to us. We are grateful for that blessing, and I pray that we allow that truth, that, that rock to be steeped into our hearts, just as the church and the body of believers is built upon. I pray we stand on that truth. Father, thank you for loving us, leading us through your word, and continuing to guide us in grace. Father, Father, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. As we stand to sing right now in response, feel free to come up or find us after the service and pray. If you've recognized Jesus for the first time today, we want to pray with you. Feel free to come up or find us after the service. Let's sing.